Welcome to the Spirited Advocate Podcast, brought to you by the Distilled Spirits Council of the United States, the leading voice for the distilled spirits industry. Now your host, Chris Wonger. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Spirited Advocate Podcast. Uh, we're very much privileged today to be joined by Deirdre Mullen, President and CEO of Diageo North America. Deirdre has been in the spirits business for almost 30 years. And unfortunately for us here at the Distilled Spirits Council, uh, Deirdre announced earlier this year her plans to retire. Uh, she looks forward to a uh, new life. Uh, I've had the privilege of working with Deirdre closely for the last almost year and a half as she has served as the chair of the Distilled Spirits Council of the United States. So Deirdre has played an instrumental role in helping me with my onboarding in helping and supporting Discus navigate through some trying, trying times, certainly over the last four or five months. Deirdre, welcome, and thank you for being with us on this podcast. It's, it's kind of a sad time, but I know it's an exciting time for you. Uh, have have you been doing over the last two or three months as we've been navigating through COVID and, you know, all the unique times that our country is going through? And thank you for joining us. Uh, thank you, Chris. Uh, I'm happy to be here and have an opportunity to talk to you uh, and your viewers uh, before uh, I move on to the next chapter of my career. Uh, it has indeed been a challenging uh, few months. Uh, however, I'm doing well. Uh, you know, agility is important. Uh, I'm fortunate enough to be uh, able to be with a number of members of my family uh, and with my business at Diageo and with Discus. We're navigating through the challenges, I think, uh, really well, as, as well as we can. Great. Well, Deirdre, tell us a little bit about your background, how you landed in the spirits industry. I know you, you spent some time at Seagram. Uh, you got your MBA at uh, Columbia University. Just tell us the story on how Deirdre uh, came into the spirits business, if you could. Yeah, well, I started my career uh, as an accountant. Uh, I worked at Pricewaterhouse for nine years, uh, and I was really fortunate uh, at Pricewaterhouse that I had a number of consumer goods clients. Uh, the most prominent at the time was Corning Glass, which now is called Corning Inc., but back in the day, uh, they had a big consumer business, and my first uh, assignment was actually going to a manufacturing plant where those little blue, those little casserole dishes with the blue flowers, for those of you old enough to remember them, were going around on the assembly line. Uh, and that's where I fell in love with consumer goods. Uh, and consumer goods has always been what is, gets me excited, both when I was in finance and commercially. Uh, so when it was time to leave Price Waterhouse and I had an opportunity to join Seagram, uh, I knew some people there, knew it had a great reputation as a, a, a place to work. Uh, and so I joined Seagram, uh, and I've never really looked back because the spirits industry, both in terms of Seagram and what Seagram was doing, uh, what it evolved to, and then since the acquisition uh, of Seagram by Diageo and Pernod Ricard uh, late, late in 2001, uh, I've continued uh, upon joining Diageo, uh, had an opportunity to really do fun uh, and exciting and interesting things. And for what is sometimes perceived as a very traditional industry, uh, in my view, it's been really dynamic in terms of seeing the innovation and capabilities in brands uh, and how we think of ourselves as an industry. Uh, so it's been exciting and I've never really felt that I needed to move on from the industry uh, to continue to grow as a leader uh, and as a professional, most recently moving into an operating role, which has been really exciting for me. 
Absolutely. So you lived through the Edgar Bronfman Jr. era and all of that. I mean, Seagram was such a, a great company during that time. And certainly Diageo uh, uh, came into its leadership role as well uh, with others. I mean, we've seen such growth for the spirits industry over the last 20 years. And that, that acquisition by Diageo and Pernod Ricard of Seagram was a game game changing time. Okay. Uh, in 2007, you went to London, and right. uh, you ended up becoming the chief financial officer for Diageo. Tell us about that experience. Uh, well, the moving to London was uh, a great experience. I remember I've lived in New York State, uh, and actually for most of my life in one town in in Queens for most of my life. And then I've told my friends at the time when I decided to move, I moved big, just went to a new continent. So when I left New York, uh, I went to the UK. I thought it would be a great opportunity for my family. Uh, I had three kids, uh, actually right just coming into their teen years. They were 12, 14, and 16. They didn't think it was such a great idea. But it turned out to be a great experience for my family. Uh, I went there to continue to expand. Uh, my finance experience, uh, I had done traditionally kind of reporting type roles and auditing type roles. And when I moved to the UK, I took on treasury and capital markets and tax and shared services. So really had an opportunity to expand my role uh, to get me ready for uh, an opportunity to be CFO, which fortunately for me uh, worked out in 2010. Um, and I became CFO at a really interesting time for Diageo. Uh, it was at a time when emerging markets were really expanding broadly. Uh, we were able to make a number of acquisitions uh, in emerging markets across Africa, Latin America, uh, China, and India. Um, and uh, that was, and, and Europe actually. Uh, so that was really an exciting time where we were looking to ensure that for the long term future, our business would be balanced out across where we saw uh, the biggest consumer opportunities. Uh, and so that was a pretty exciting time. Uh, I was able to be there through a transition of a CEO to uh, Ivan Menezes, our current CEO, who then again uh, shifted uh, our focus following those acquisitions to be able to really grow our organic business. Uh, and we've been focused uh, primarily on uh, improving the effectiveness of consumer insights and really just driving strong uh, global performance uh, since then. Uh, and then I moved back to the U.S. in, in uh, 2015 and took on my current role. Fantastic. And that's when you started to get engaged with Discus. Usually folks with a finance background don't engage too much on the external affairs front. Uh, tell us about uh, coming, to, coming back to the U.S. marketplace, how, how the marketplace has changed so dramatically uh, probably over the last five years. Could you just yeah. tell us about your perspective, how the consumer has changed and sure. certainly how the marketplace has changed in the U.S. in particular over the last five years? Sure. First, I would just say I've always considered myself a business leader first and a functional leader second. So I didn't spend too much time worrying about my finance background, although it perhaps worried some of my colleagues. Uh, but in any event, when we came back, uh, when I came back to the U.S., uh, the North American business uh, in Diageo uh, had been experiencing prior to that a significant amount of growth, largely uh, through um, continuing to build our innovation capability. Uh, Diageo uh, is uh, a great innovator. We've driven a lot of growth through the innovation, ex primarily expansion on our brands, but also through some new-to-world brands. 
and so that had been something we had leaned into heavily. Um, and as I came into the business, we saw that what we wanted to do was continue to innovate and innovate strongly, but to really dial up our consumer insights so that we could, uh, you know, ensure that we had a more sustainable innovation platform and also uh, had the right balance of growing innovation and also growing our core brands. So we really started dialing up our focus on consumer insights. Uh, and on tools and capabilities in understanding how which categories and brands to invest in uh, and which consumer insights were the most important and developed some uh, bespoke tools in order to do that. The trends that have been most key since I've come and we're seeing playing out today are actually uh, people's uh, wanting to have experiences. And we may come on to this later, but we're even seeing that in the virtual world during lockdown about how people still want to have experiences and experiences with our brands. Uh, the other thing, what I would call a bit of a democratization, uh, where people, you know, the new luxury, luxury became about the experience and not yep. about acquiring things. Um, and the third one that I would call on that is just overwhelms everything we're doing in consumer goods is convenience. And again, we're seeing that really play out. Um, and actually, some of the friction uh, in our industry where people were struggling to get convenience on delivery, et cetera, I think what's happened during the pandemic is starting to break some of that down, uh, where people who felt there were too much friction have now leaned into it uh, and are finding ways to really embrace uh, delivery. Uh, whether it be through just from their liquor store or even delivery or to go that we're seeing develop uh, from the on-trade. Absolutely. I mean, uh, the COVID-19 crisis has really prompted that. Uh, from your perspective, how much does external affairs engagement in the public policy process, how much, how important is that and how how much of a difference does that ultimately make uh, in uh, needed changes in the marketplace to help drive that consumer convenience? Mm. I mean, I think it's really key. I, as you mentioned, when I came back to the market, I was here for about a year. And of course, I was always informed about what our corporate, affair, corporate relations and government affairs teams were doing in the industry. Uh, and I decided I wanted to get closer to it, better understand uh, our role uh, and, you know, help to, to ensure that our strategy and the strategy uh, that we were deploying could be uh, heard uh, with respect to what's happening across the industry. So um, it is really key. Um, in particular, you know, people often think about what's happening in the near term. I mean, I think COVID-19, and you, you've mentioned this, Chris, has, is just an example of how important government affairs uh, is. Uh, we have been working through Discus on the Discus strategy. When I came on board at Discus, uh, Discus had developed and was about to roll out a new strategy, which is about ensuring that our products as suppliers in the industry can be available uh, to all consumers when they want and how they want, um, you know, responsibly, of course, uh, but in, in terms of that framework. We wanted to ensure we had a level playing field across categories uh, and that consumers had ready access to our brands. Um, and so the examples that we're talking about now on delivery that we're seeing happening more through the um, through things like apps like Drizzly, but also through... Um, 
um, the websites on yep. uh, retailers, uh, and then increasingly even from some distilleries. There's a movement uh, in particular among craft distillers uh, to ensure that people where they may not have distribution can still get access from the distil distillery into the hands of consumers who want to sample those products. So the work that's been happening really does start to make a difference, whether that, uh, and also on taxation. So whether it be in the Craft Modernization Act, or the work that we're doing to try to uh, beat back tariffs or access. And I know there's quite a lot of work going on right now about when we did see um, some delivery opportunities opening up, some states are now moving those temporary regulations to permanent ones to allow people to have more access and, and retailers to be able to offer their products in different formats uh, to consumers. Deirdre, be, oh, go yeah, go ahead. Uh, Diage has always been uh, certainly a leader in responsibility. And uh, the industry's made a lot of progress over the last 20 to 30 years, uh, forging partnerships with a lot of different stakeholders, whether it's through traffic safety or education programs to help prevent underage drinking or combating drunk driving. How important is uh, for industry leaders like Diageo and others in the industry uh, to be totally invested, engaged on the responsibility side? And how does that ultimately make a difference in uh, the market access opportunities for the industry? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I see responsibility in this industry as the baseline. It is our license to operate. Uh, I think if we, you know, we know that when our products are used inappropriately uh, by people, they can cause harm. Uh, and so it is absolutely imperative that as an industry, we stand for responsible consumption of our products and all that that means, whether it be access to ensuring that there is no access to uh, underage consumers, ensuring that we have the right laws and regulations in place with regard to drunk driving, uh, and you know, with respect to how we're seeing um, regulations about whether it be labeling or format or packaging so that we're sure, or delivery even, to ensure that only the appropriate people uh, receive the product is so key uh, to our business. Uh, so we can see this. So when we're talking about uh, delivery uh, or being able to get the to-go products that we're seeing happening through COVID-19, I think it's really important that we uh, engage with, at the state and local level and ensure that the type of container that's used, uh, the formats that are used, um, the uh, you know regulations around how that is done um, is achieved in a way where we feel that people will still be using the products um, uh, responsibly, responsibly and it doesn't yeah. end up with people because it's something new and they think there's less friction, they start to use the products irresponsibly and um, by taking something uh, to go and then... Um, you know, being inappropriate with how they use that. Absolutely. I remember back back in the early 2000s when Diageo became Diageo, uh, there, was a, there was a lot of anxiety in the industry for those that weren't part of the Diageo family, just because Diageo was the largest distilled spirits company in the world. There were a lot of questions on how Diageo was going to advocate on public policy issues and so forth. There was a lot of speculation and anxiety about that. Uh, 
one of the great things that that I found uh, returning back into the industry is your approach to collaboration in working with all the suppliers. How important is that uh, from your perspective? Uh, you know, within Discus, uh, we many we have many many great suppliers, and and under your leadership, Diage has really been a collaborator. Uh, in a leader in that regard. How important is unity in collaboration with the supplier tier and certainly with our distributor and our retail tier as well? I mean, a healthy industry is good for everyone in the industry. Uh, you know, we, like uh, a number of the, uh, the other suppliers in uh, Discus, uh, yeah, we understand we're all competing with each other. Uh, but the more um, we can uh, have a healthy industry and one that's dynamic and changing and innovating, uh, the better it is for our consumers. We've seen this with the kind of explosion of craft distilleries. Uh, that has been good for our industry overall. Uh, it has helped to attract um, consumers in terms of seeing what different types of distilled products have to offer um, uh, to consumers. Um, and uh, I think as long as we continue to do that and stay together and aligned, that's how we're going to help achieve responsibility to get the right kinds of regulations, help our regulators understand uh, what we are doing as an industry to ensure our product uh, is used responsibly and to ensure that we can have the appropriate regulations so that continues. So uh, I think collaboration, you know, as appropriate at the industry level uh, uh, against how to ensure that our products are um, broadly available but also uh, used safely by our by our consumers is really the best way to go. Uh, and as a leader in the industry, uh, we will continue to support that and collaborate uh, with our peers. Absolutely. The marketplace has gone through so many dramatic, fast changes just over the last two or three months. You know, as we look at the marketplace five, 10 years from now, uh, it will create uh, some challenges uh, with suppliers and our distributor and our retail partners on how to navigate all of that, how to keep the core of what made has made this industry, you know, strong. Uh, certainly, uh, full support of the three-tier system and so forth. But we're going to have to work together uh, with our distributor and our retail partners as we navigate this. I mean, Diageo's uh, certainly. You talked about consumer insights and so forth. Uh, we have to all be consumer-led and really uh, roll up our sleeves and and think about. Uh, all of these marketplace changes and, and how to uh, work on these changes together to ensure that the vibrance of the industry remains intact, to ensure that we're consumer-led, and to ensure that we're collaborating in a way that creates marketplace changes that upholds high standards of responsibility. Because we do, after all, uh, sell a, a product uh, that does need to be regulated. Any advice, uh, counsel, you could provide uh, myself and uh, the folks at Discus and uh, our other member companies as we work through all of these changes uh, and certainly the importance of working with our distributor and our retail partners as well? Um, yeah, I, mean, I would say that the three-tier system, as you mentioned, has been a successful way to ensure uh, that our products are distributed safely. Uh, uh, for many, many years. Um, the world does continue to change, and it, though and it has been a long time since those uh, regulations um, you know, and adjustments, the amendment to the Constitution was first established. 
the world is changing and changing rapidly. And we need to think about what are the implications of that uh, with respect to uh, ensuring that all that is effective uh, and that remains in place, of course, for the three-tier system, that we continue to um, work within that uh, and work effectively within that. But also, how can we ensure that the consumer's needs are met? I mentioned earlier the uh, one of the key trends that is not changing with the onset of what's been happening with technology is the consumer's demand for convenience. And that is something that within the three-tier system, so for example, when it comes to delivery or direct-to-consumer and some yep. of the other elements around that, we have to find a way uh, with our retailers and distributors to figure out how to meet that consumer need and do it effectively uh, you know, without uh, creating uh, undue friction uh, for the consumer. Uh, and there are some challenges with that, that people have legitimate concerns about how it would operate within a three-tier system. But that's something that I think, according to that collaboration that you mentioned earlier across the three tiers, uh, we need to do. I know there have been a number of conversations where we have been talking in the industry about you know, how to work through um, those particular challenges. And I think they need to continue with the WSWA and DISCUS and ASDA as we think about you know, what is this going to mean in order to be able to meet those consumer needs. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, I think it was back in December, I had the chance to visit uh, your beautiful new offices uh, uh, down by uh, the World Trade Center and that whole area. I know that COVID has been an uncertain time, everybody working virtually. It is, it is absolutely beautiful right off Battery Park. Uh, could you just tell us about that? I know that was a proud evening when you had your yeah. office office opening, and hopefully we'll all be back together there again at some point uh, soon. Could you just tell us about, uh, uh, as you look to leave Diageo and retire, just uh, about your accomplishments and your contributions, and uh, just t tell us a little bit about that. That, that would be great. Yeah, I mean, I uh, we're very proud of the new office and very excited about it. Uh, we opened the office only in January uh, of 2020. Yeah. Uh, so you can imagine our disappointment when we had to leave so quickly. And the last time I was in the office, I think, was the first week in March. Uh, we closed it. We made it voluntary at one point and then closed it kind of around the middle of March. Uh, and currently don't have immediate plans to open. We're still uh, looking at working through that. So fortunately for Diageo, we have been using technology for a long time uh, in terms of we have a big global business. We have different offices around the U.S. We, we use technology, video, Zoom, uh, pretty uh, readily. Uh, so we made the transition to remote working uh, pretty well. That said, we set up that office, and it was part of a cultural shift in Diageo to drive more collaboration um, with our employees to bring together uh, sales and marketing, which were in different offices uh, for our North, for our U.S. business uh, in particular. Uh, and so, uh, of course, we're disappointed that we were just getting that off the ground um, when we uh, had to take a step back. And now we'll have to work through how we still achieve those goals because they are still our goals. And I'm confident we will achieve them of greater collaboration and working together and having the opportunity to use that um, amazing uh, space uh, for best effect. So uh, certainly I feel that that's one of, our, one of my accomplishments, which was to have done that. Um, the second, the other thing that I would um, just call out in terms of my accomplishments was, uh, you know, what we've done in the North American business. And I referred to it earlier, just in terms of 
rebalancing and reshaping our portfolio strategy so that we get the right balance uh, with innovation. Uh, and we were able uh, at the end of last fiscal year uh, to improve our share trajectory uh, in the industry by getting that balance right. Uh, and I'm certainly very proud of that. That's something I came here uh, and wanted to do. Uh, and I also think we have high levels of employee engagement and a really motivated team. And as a leader uh, in the industry, uh, that's, the real, that's the real metric. engagement, yes, yeah. is yeah. something that uh, I really feel good about. And I am absolutely confident that uh, our business will go from strength under Deborah Cruz's uh, leadership as well. Absolutely. Tell us about uh, uh, when, I, when I joined the industry, I think back in 1995, uh, certainly uh, diversity wasn't what you would kind of call the industry. I mean, the industry has great heritage and great history. Uh, but uh, with you under your leadership, uh, diversity, it just shows that the strength of diversity in all, uh, all different forms. Could you tell us a little bit about diversity? There's a, a lot of challenging things that have been going on in the country over the last two or three weeks. I know Diageo has had a robust diversity uh, platform uh, under your leadership. That is that is testament to that. Could you just tell us a little bit about the importance of diversity and why does diversity make industries great uh, and greater? Yeah, I mean, Diageo has as one of its core values, uh, valuing each other, um, which is really just an expression of our commitment to inclusion and diversity. And inclusion is just as important as diversity. Uh, if you have a diverse population without inclusion, um, your diversity starts to fall away. It's like a leaky bucket uh, experience yep. because the people who are diverse don't feel comfortable in that environment. Uh, and while Diageo has made some progress, uh, in particular in gender, we have a long way to go. Um, so I'm very proud of our commitment. Uh, however, I, I remain disappointed in our results. Uh, I think the um, discussion that's happening in this case, uh, country right now about uh, bias uh, and systemic uh, discrimination against uh, African-American community or people of African heritage uh, descent um, is just an example uh, of how we have a long way to go. I, we have a way to go in my business uh, with respect to that and a way to go uh, in the industry. Uh, and so I think we cannot afford to be complacent. Uh, the conversation that's happening now, uh, you know, just reinforces the fact that this is something that needs to be in our conversations, in our own businesses, in our families, and in our communities uh, on an ongoing basis so that we can really get to the point where people are uh, treated equally, uh, as is our intent, and that we can really be, demonstrate every day that we're valuing each other. Absolutely. McKinsey did a study a while back just showing the strength of diversity and inclusion. Inclusion is a big part of that. And those industries that embrace diversity and inclusion, uh, their, their ability to su succeed in the marketplace increases dramatically. And I think that's something uh, that our industry is going to have to take on head on. And uh, hopefully, uh, Going forward, Discus can play a role to help convene a dialogue uh, on on the important aspects of diversity and inclusion. I think the word inclusion is a critical part part of that. Uh, certainly, because consumers of all races and creed and gender 
love our great products, right? Yeah. And uh, certainly, this is something that our industry needs to work on and really be committed to. And it's not going to be something that changes overnight, but every day we need to make some progress on that. Yeah. I mean, uh, I agree with that, Chris. I, I think, I hope that this moment uh, serves uh, as a real impetus for the industry to have a look at our industry. I mean, if you look across the leadership of the industry, it is lacking in diversity. Um, and unfortunately, there are some differences among the tiers, but if you look across it broadly, uh, it is lacking uh, you know, at every tier um, in terms of the uh, representation uh, if you compare it to the representation of our consumers. And I'm talking about leadership. So um, certainly there are entrepreneurs uh, across the industry where we do have diverse representation. But if you just look at it broadly, uh, you know, it's, it is disappointing. And we absolutely should focus on um, make, and committing to making real progress uh, and to not have it take too much time. It's been decades already. So, Absolutely. Uh, yeah. you know, we can make quick change uh, if we commit ourselves to it. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, so let's just pivot a little bit, uh, if I may. And as we do, we always ask all of our guests, uh, if you could have a cocktail with anybody, uh, dead or alive, someone, uh, someone famous, certainly if you have someone in your, in your personal life, that would be interesting as well. But who would that one person be and where would you have that cocktail? Okay, I sometimes have known as a bit of a rebel. I don't always play by the rules, so I'm not going to answer your question exactly. I'm going to okay. change it just a bit because I did know it was coming and I thought about it. <laughs> um, my favorite cocktail of late is one that one of the mixologists at Diageo was making right around the time that we left the office, um, which I uh, is a scotch cocktail uh, and one that I've come to love, and that's a penicillin. And I suggest all of you try it. Uh, it is really delicious. Uh, and there are many scotch brands uh, to choose from. Diageo has several. You can ask. Yep. If, um, Johnny <laughs> Walker. Looking for them. Exactly. Yes. Um, exactly. The, uh, but, you know, who would I have it with and where would I have it? We referenced earlier my amazing new office uh, and how little time we had to uh, share there. And the fact that I'm missing all of my colleagues at Diageo and will retire actually without being able to raise a glass and celebrate with them. So if I could uh, share a penicillin, I think I'd be like, just be standing in Bar Deco at Three World Trade with all of my colleagues in North America and raising a toast to them and the successful future that I know they'll have. That is awesome. Penicillin. 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 Uh, made, <laughs> penicillin made with, uh, of no doubt, uh, Johnny Walker. Johnny Walker. Sure. It has a beautiful ginger syrup in it uh, and some, I believe, some lime. I have to check. I should have checked the recipe before, but it is absolutely delicious. Uh, you can find a recipe for it. You have to make the ginger syrup in advance if you don't have it on hand. Okay. It gets to steep, in, uh, and it, uh, the longer it seeps, the better. Uh, so it may take some planning unless you go out and purchase the ginger syrup. I would recommend you make your own. It uh, makes for a delicious uh, cocktail. So uh, when you have a moment, since people are at home these days, give it a try. Give it a try. Absolutely. Yeah. We'll, we will. So Deirdre, on behalf of the Distilled Spirits Council of the United States, on behalf of me personally, uh, uh, thank God I had a chance to, to work with you and get your guidance and counsel. Uh, here at Discus, we've gone through an evolution, a lot of, a lot of change. Uh, I think in the positive is Discus is working hard to try to 
uh, unify the industry, uh, work with our distributor and our retail partners on on these big uh, important issues for the for the greater good of the industry. And none of that could have happened without uh, without your leadership and support. Uh, and you've just I remember uh, in my early days on the job. Uh, I called you about something that was probably in the scheme of things fairly little, but she was like, Deirdre said to me, Chris, we put you in this job to lead. You go do it. You utilize the board on guidance and so forth. And it was an aha moment. I think it was like December 10th, uh, uh, 2018. I was about a month and a half in the job. And uh, you have been a great mentor for me. And uh, as you depart uh, and look uh, forward to new endeavors in your life, uh, just please know on behalf of the Distilled Spirits Council and really on behalf of everybody within the industry, we should uh, applaud and appreciate uh, your leadership. I don't have uh, penicillin, but I do have <laughs> uh, a bullet, uh, a bullet uh, bourbon. And uh, just really on behalf of the distilled spirits industry, thank you for your leadership. And we look forward to working with you and hopefully seeing you uh, in your in your your future life. And we're just uh, very, very thankful for your leadership over the last couple of years. Thank you, Chris. And another great cocktail is a Bullet Bourbon Manhattan, another one of my favorites. <laughs> so awesome. good, excellent choice. Excellent okay. choice. Uh, thank you again for inviting me. I have found my time working closely with Discus and on the board and as the chair, personally rewarding. Uh, and I know that uh, Clarkson Hine is going to take on the chair. I know Discus, again, will continue to drive forward and do great things uh, in terms of ensuring that the, ind- that the industry can deliver against the broader Discus strategy. So uh, thanks again for inviting me. I've enjoyed talking to you today. Thank you, Deirdre. Cheers on Ciao. behalf of you. Thank Bye-bye. you. Bye. The Spirited Advocate podcast was brought to you by the Distilled Spirits Council of the United States. If you'd like to be a guest speaker on the show or send us topic suggestions to cover, please contact us at podcast at distilledspirits.org. And please like and share these episodes. Your support is very appreciated.